There's nothing new under the sun. It's how you put it together, says my next guest, Steve Maxwell. Steve's going to take us back. Took me back to 1993 when I used to train with him and Helson Gracie on occasion at Steve's place called Maxercise Fitness on Chestnut Street, Philadelphia. Since then, Steve has built a long career and one of the most notable and and um, and recognized fitness trainers and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu instructors in the world. He had a long history of competitive grappling. Started in high school and wrestled for Westchester State University. And his Jiu-Jitsu experience had gone on to win a number of titles, uh, world titles, and and Pan American Championships uh, throughout 1997-2004. Steve then continued to spread his knowledge and his passion for fitness and jiu-jitsu and traveled the world learning and instructing as he went. Today we catch up with Steve many decades later and we talk to the man, the myth, and the legend, Steve Maxwell. Join me on this episode of NZD Fit, the No Zero Days Life. Hey, Steve Maxwell, how are you? I'm great, Sam. What's going on with you? Uh, it's good to see you again. Well, you know, we're, uh, we've been sitting at about 70 degrees for the past few days. We're about to get some winter weather finally here in Denver, Colorado. But uh, Wow, 70 in Denver. Woo! Yeah, dude, it's Not been bad. warm. It's been warm. Yeah, it's been real nice. Uh, but yeah, we're, in, we're finally it's at really, some winter weather. It's really strange because I'm down south near Hilton Head, a little town called uh, Bluffton. And we were having very chilly weather. It was like in the 40s there for a little bit. Oh, no kidding. But now today it's back up around almost 72, so sunny. All right, all right. But they it had been quite uh, quite summery feeling, at least yeah. from where I'm from, it felt like summer. So let's talk about that. You moved around a little bit, but when we, uh, when we first met, it was back in, and I'm going to have to guess, I want to show you something here. I think it was 1990 three or thereabout. I don't know if you can see that photo. Holy shit. That's a <laughs> long time ago. Is that Uncle Helsing Gracie? It is. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Your Maxercise gym in uh, Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. Yeah, 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 yeah. How about That's... that? Yeah, look how, look how young Helsing looks. Uh, we all right. must have looked really young back then. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking that was probably about that 93 time frame. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was just, I think, pre-UFC, if I'm not mistaken. That winter, uh, Hoist fought in the first UFC in Denver. That was the that was That was, I think you were visiting just pre-the uh, UFC. Yeah, I don't remember. We made a couple trips down. Um, one, I brought my brother uh, a couple times. I went with uh, one of the other guys that trained at our dojo. Uh, I think we were coming down on a Saturday. If I remember, you were holding clinics on on a Saturday. Uh, there, yeah, uh, if Helson was in town for sure, we'd always yeah. have some kind of event on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, my ex-wife DC Maxwell, who was the third American woman to get a black belt in BJJ, she's one of the original Dirty Dozen women. No kidding. And she used to book ballrooms and like down in Atlantic City. And I mean, she made Helsing tens of thousands of dollars, if not more, <laughs> you know, because she was just so good at organizing these clinics and yeah. seminars. 
And we had something booked all the time for, for uh, Helsinki when he would come. Not to mention regular classes. And we would line profits up for him pretty much as much as he wanted, you know? Usually uh, two, three, four people. Yeah, if I, if I remember, they were pretty, it was pretty small turnout. It was, it, you know, it was really intimate. And I look back and I'm, I'm really grateful to have had that opportunity experience. Yeah, I mean, there were some of the seminars that were like more than 70 people, 75 wow. people. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't so, think there were more than it, it, four or five of us at a time. Oh, well, that, are you sure that wasn't a semi-private class? I don't remember. I, I, I recall paying about 60 bucks coming down. For yeah, semi-private. Semi-private, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. on. Yeah, that was well, awesome. he always said it's easier to teach two, three, or four people than it is one person. Yeah, one person you got to take all the reps in your own body. <laughs> but if you if the guy is a partner, I can demonstrate in you, and then I can demonstrate in him and save a lot of wear and tear on myself, you know. Uh, Especially sure. when you're working with beginners, you're always worried that they might put a little bit too much pressure, you know, a little bit too much spice in the stew. Yeah. And end up injuring your limb. I mean, it's pretty easy to happen. You got to be yeah, really when, careful. Yeah, yeah. A, when, when there's a lack of technique and, and a lot of ego, uh, it, it can happen, I'm sure. T well, beginners, back. beginners just don't know what they're capable of. And because they're unfamiliar with the hold, they don't know exactly how much pressure it takes to actually hurt somebody. And a lot of times, you know, there'll be some dismay. You're tapping. And they're, you know, the beginner will say, well, what are you tapping for? Because it hurts. They don't even realize how effective it really is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I it made sense. I, I'm curious. Uh, see, your your wife is setting up those clinics. Give, give me, take me back. I, let's let's go back for the folks that, you know, that haven't heard your story. You, you, you started out in, was it Carlisle, Pennsylvania? Carlisle, Pennsylvania, wrestled all through junior high school, high school. Was a decent high school wrestler. Uh, I had badly injured my neck as a junior uh, playing football. Mm. And uh, no, actually wrestling. And then later in football, again, two neck injuries, same year. And I was forbidden to do contact sports. But I trained like a maniac and got myself very, very strong and made a comeback my senior year. And had, had a very good season, one sectional, uh, not bad. Went to Westchester State Teachers College. It wasn't even a university in those days. It was a wow. state teacher's college. I'm really dating myself now. I started in 1970. And uh, as a freshman, uh, I learned the ropes, what the big times are like in wrestling. I mean, there were some pretty tough guys in our team. We had yeah. four MAC champs and uh, two college All-Americans. And I basically just got my butt kicked from one end of the match to the other. And uh, for the first two years, it was a real learning experience. But I was pretty adaptable. And I did have a knack for wrestling. And I wrestled varsity both my junior and senior year. And my senior year was 18-2-1, gold meet record, which is not bad. This is at Westchester? Westchester State. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So did, uh, I mean, you know, it's a, Health and PE image. Still, still a wrestling mecca back there. Um, I don't even remember. Pennsylvania is huge. Yeah. Was Lock Haven University in that same division? Yes. I actually went to Lock Haven um, to, you know, for a go see. Uh, I was accepted there, by the way. 
And I chose Westchester instead yeah. of Lock Haven. But I liked Lock Haven, you know? Yeah, Lock really Haven, uh, Bloomsburg, lots of great wrestling programs back there for sure. Th that year, Bloomsburg had three NCAA champions, if you can believe that. Little teeny, yeah. yeah. Wade Chalice, uh, Don Roan, and uh, can't remember Simpson's first name. But these guys were unbelievable wrestlers. Unbelievable. Chalice uh, himself was like a record setter and just an amazing wrestler. Yeah, st from still, still some real uh, iconic and, uh, and high performer wrestlers. I think Zeke Jones, you know that name? He's, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, sure, sure. I think Zeke came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, I, he ended up coaching, uh, I believe, University of Pennsylvania there for a while. He's, from what I understand, maybe down. Or University uh, of Penn, Ar yeah. yeah. He's at Arizona State now, I think. Because okay. he spent some time at the OTC. I think he coached the uh, freestyle program down there for a while. Very uh, cool. In the Springs. Yeah, lots of, lots of great talent came out of that area. So, wrestling was a big Chester. wrestling area. And then, for of course, sure. after I graduated, I continued to wrestle. I coached wrestling at the mm -hmm. high school level. But uh, it's, a, it's a hard game as you get older. As you know, it's a young man's sport. Hard. It's really hard just from a training point of view. And um, I decided I really didn't like teaching high school. And I was looking for something that I really did like. And the whole time I was in um, college, I was working part-time at a Nautilus Sports Fitness Center. And I really liked working in the fitness industry. It was just at the very beginnings of the fitness industry. This is just as the start of the running boom, uh, Personal training didn't really exist at that time. And uh, I, I, I got a job working at uh, Huff and Puff Gym, the first Nautilus gym in Pennsylvania. And I loved it. I loved working with the people. I had a great mentor, uh, Greg Ellis, who's now a PhD, Dr. Gregory Ellis. Uh, he, uh, he was my mentor. And he really showed me the ropes when it came he, to exercise. Was he... Uh... Was he one of the founders of the Nautilus concept or just one of the first gyms? No, just one of the first owners. Him yeah. and a fellow by the name of John Carton, who was a, a pretty big-time martial artist guy and a bodybuilder. They were also uh, big Mike Menser fans. Mike Menser was a huge name in bodybuilding, and he made a name for the, for the high-intensity training system. Uh, Menser had learned from Arthur Jones and then kind of branched out with some of his own ideas. So it was a very exciting time. Very yeah. exciting. Yeah. And then later, really Greg on the cusp. right on the cusp. So I worked at this Nautilus Fitness Center for quite a few years. And um, I was always looking for something to replace my precious wrestling, you know? And uh, I opened up a Nautilus Center at the Society Hill Club back in the early 80s and had uh, amazing success. It was at uh, the old Society Hill Club on. Uh, uh, 250 South 5th Street, I believe. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really made a name for myself there. People, I, I wrote articles and magazines and, you know, the, the name got out there slowly but surely. And I was on local TV a whole bunch, you know, for some crazy stuff I was doing back in the day. And then I opened up my own place, Maxercise, in uh, January of 1990 with my ex-wife, D.C. Maxwell. We okay. opened it up together. 
And uh, I had mostly Nautilus hammer strength equipment, uh, some free weights, dumbbells and such. And then I opened up the very first BJJ school in the Eastern United States. I had, was, always, I had always thought you had to be one of the first. So it was, you were I the was first. the first. That's amazing. That's first really school. Cool. Yeah. And now, I was now, under, how, how did you find it? How did you come across BJJ? Uh, I was looking for something to fill the gap, fill that void that wrestling left. I tried mm -hmm. Bondo. Do you know what Bondo is? It's the mother art of Muay Thai. It's a Burmese version of Muay Thai, except they don't wear gloves. They wear uh, thongs, bare fists, pretty brutal. It's like bare knuckle kickboxing. It was the art of the Gurkha. The Gurkhas were the warrior caste. They were the guys that had this famous curved knives. And they were a, um, they were formed in a special operations team by the British during World War II. They're called the Chindex. Very, the Japanese feared these guys. Wow. They were very wow. tough guys. So that Bondo was tough. And uh, I also tried my hand at Shotogun Karate, uh, some Kung Fu. Yeah, but it wasn't really for me. You know, it really wasn't. And around, right around early 89, I heard that the Gracie brothers were putting on this clinic in Parsippany, New Jersey. So I went and it was like, wow, this is what I want, man. This is what I'm looking for. I got my ass kicked really bad by Hoyler Gracie. This really, he was really tiny, barely spoke English, very personable guy. And uh, I couldn't believe this little guy could basically just make me tap. I just couldn't believe it. But, you know, being a hard-headed wrestler, thinking right. I knew everything, it was like, wow. And uh, I said to Hoyer, I said, how can I learn this? I want to become a teacher in this. He says, you got to come out to Torrance, only game in town. So I started going back and forth between Philadelphia and Torrance. Meantime, I opened up my own gym. Open, you know, I worked my own hours. I was the owner of my own business. So I would take time off, spend a couple of weeks out there, I had always earmarked a certain amount of money that I had saved up and usually a couple thousand dollars. And when I would run out of that money, I would fly back home. And that money I would spend on private lessons. And I would get as many privates as I could during the week. And usually Horleon, who was running the uh, newly, it was a brand new Gracie Academy. They had just opened up themselves. Up to that point, my first trip, I actually trained in the garage. Horian didn't even have his school yet. And then he opened up the school shortly after that. And uh, it was amazing. What an experience. And in those days, it was Horian, Hoyce, Hickson, Hoyler, Master Elia, sometimes Holker, Gracie. He's a brother that a lot of people don't know. Wow. And on any given day, you'd be taught by one of those guys. Wow. <laughs> this is all pre-UFC. So yeah. how many of them were living in the U.S. at that time? Five. Really? Yeah. Uh, Horian. Helson was living in Hawaii, I believe. So he was in the U.S. And then Hoyler, Hickson. Yeah. So I guess four of the brothers. And Holker would come back and forth. And Elliot was up quite a bit. Master Elliot Gracie. Wow. And uh, right about UFC time, uh, in fact, right after UFC, jujitsu exploded in the U.S., exploded. 
And the Gracies were really disturbed by the level of competency of a lot of people claiming to be black belts. There were guys flying up from Brazil and their belt would mysteriously change from purple belt to black belt by the time they landed in Miami. There was a lot of fraud going on. A lot of guys that were putting on belts that they hadn't earned. And the teaching was atrocious. One of the things that differentiates Gracie Jiu-Jitsu from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is the teaching style. They created, Master Elio and his oldest son, Horia, created a style of teaching, which we call Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It's the same as regular Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but it's the way you teach it, the way they introduce it to the student. And they created a teacher training program to teach people how to teach. And that's one thing I had to really give to Gracie. They might not have been the best jiu-jitsu fighters in the world, although arguably some would claim Hickson was and is, well, maybe not so much so now that he's a little bit older. But at one time, he was probably the epitome, you know, right after it was Kimura. But uh, there's plenty of tough guys, but most of them were not good teachers. And that's one thing about the Gracies. Boy, when you went in there, you really left with a lot of knowledge. So they created this teacher training program. I was the first person to graduate and be certified by the Gracie family to teach their family jujitsu. Oh, right on. <laughs> and you know the interesting thing, Sam? It, it, it was like uh, everything. It, it wasn't just like butt scoot, you know, drop under your butt and doing leg scissors and all this bullshit that you see in modern tournaments. And I don't mean to denigrate sure. athletes to play that game. Uh, I, I don't mean to to uh, be disrespectful. I mean, tons of guys would kick my butt for sure. But I, I just don't like this modern butt scoot game, you know, sitting on the ground, all that. What we learned was how to defend yourself in the street against kicks, punches, headbutts, uh, any kind of grip, grab, choke from behind, bear hugs, being pinned against the wall, someone holding a gun in your face, someone holding a knife to your throat, you know, knife, stick, gun, baseball bat. And that was all part of the curriculum. I didn't know any different. It, it was kind of like, almost like an MMA Valley Judo education. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, from, from my background experience, a lot, of, a lot of the applications that were taught then uh, had, a, had a very strong emphasis on self-defense. And, and yeah. it sounds like, you know, and I, I remember this from, from attending, you know, some of the workshops, that, that self-defense was naturally incorporated into the technique. Uh, yeah. not, not, just, not just for points or tournament uh, sake, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and, and that brings me to a, a topic. I, well, well, one point I'd like to make here. Do it. No one is ever going to react in a realistic kind of scenario the way someone in class does. You know, we, we expect a certain reaction. I'll do this, and I expect you to do that. And then I'll do that, and you'll do this. And that just goes on forever, like chess, right? When you're going against people that don't, understand jiu-jitsu they never react like they do in class that's why rolling in class is completely unrealistic in many respects well that's, that's something i wanted to kind of point out and uh and i'm sure you know the history maybe you could maybe you could take us into that a little bit 
uh, I, you know, BJJ sets such a level of popularity today, you know, worldwide, but in the United States, uh, people don't even realize that it's a Japanese origin. That's and correct. Think, you know, they think that it came out of Brazil. Not if, at all. If, if you don't mind, talk, talk to me a little bit about the history, because I'm, I've always been curious. I, I'm sure that there had to be some Japanese influence. Uh, I, I studied Goshen Budo Jiu-Jitsu. That's where I got my rank. And, um, and it was, it, it was very small circle Okinawan stand up, uh, but, but there were, there were joint locks, there were holds, there was some groundwork, there were throws, all of that incorporated into, into jujitsu. The, the Gracie style, if you will, or the Brazilian style, if you will, uh, very much had an emphasis on more emphasis on the grappling aspect, but how, how did that happen? how did that come about in Brazil? Well, the origin of jiu-jitsu go way back to India. There's uh, submission grappling styles that still practice this day. They're just not very well known. And then it went over, over the Himalayas into China and was developed somewhat by the Chinese. They have their styles of grappling. And then it went to Okinawa and then later to Japan where they really capitalized on this jiu-jitsu. But it was the Japanese that really developed it because they had that samurai culture and they developed a lot of unarmed combat techniques. If you were in the battlefield and you lost your sword, you're pretty much screwed. So, you know, you had to close the distance so you wouldn't get killed. And they became, you know, uh, these, these warriors became very adept at not only just using weapons, but using their bare hands as well to defend themselves. And this went on for many centuries and developed many different schools of jiu-jitsu. Some that specialized in striking, some that specialized in grappling, some that specialized in weapons. A lot of different styles of jiu-jitsu were popular. After, right, right prior to World War II, Jigoro Kano, who was an educator and a philosopher, wanted to bring all these styles of jiu-jitsu together as one style. And he incorporated, I believe I've heard over 13 different styles of jiu-jitsu and created judo. And old school judo was much different than the judo of today. The judo of today pretty much was, became the art it is after World War II. When Japan lost the war, they were forbidden by the allies to practice any martial arts. So they had to kind of meet in secret, usually late at night to practice their style. But a lot of people just gave up. And Kano developed judo more like a wrestling style, like a jacketed form of wrestling so that they could continue to practice judo under the agreement, the armistice agreement. But the original judo was very formative. And when it, prior to World War II, Kano sent out emissaries all over the world to spread the word of this new type of jujitsu that they called judo. And one of those emissaries was a guy by the name of Asa Maeda, who was a very formidable fighter, a little guy, but incredibly strong and fit. And apparently had just an amazing style of judo. 
And in those days, they would often use the term jujitsu and judo interchangeably. But there was many other Japanese too. And he ended up, you know, going to Spain and France and the UK, ended up in the US, actually had a lesson with Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was a big jujitsu man. Jujitsu was used at the United States Naval Academy. Uh, it was used, you know, as the basis for the, uh, the original OSS, the spies of World War II. They, they actually had uh, a jujitsu based martial art that they were teaching these guys, the, uh, the fighter pilots. Though, in those days, there was no Air Force. They had the Army Air Corps. All those pilots were taught jujitsu and hand-to-hand combat. So it was all jujitsu based. And even to this day in the U.S. Army, Army Rangers, Green Beret, they still use jujitsu, jujitsu based. The U.K., jujitsu based for, for their combat elite. And uh, Maeda ended up going down to South America, spent a lot of time in Cuba, Mexico, went on down. And he, uh, he was aided by the senior Gracie, Gastel Gracie, who had five sons. I believe I'm, I may be wrong. I'll probably corrected by somebody in the comment section, but there was uh, George, Gio, Oswaldo, Carlos, and Elio. Elio never directly was trained by Maeda, but his older brother, Carlos, was. And Carlos later taught Elio jiu-jitsu straight from the source. But there was many Japanese in Brazil, because pre-World War II, Brazil was like an immigration colony. The Japanese needed, you know, being a small island nation to fuel their war, wartime uh, economy and, and, and so forth. They needed the raw ore and the rubber and all these natural resources to be shipped to Japan from Brazil. So there was a lot of Japanese in some cities, I was told pre-World War II, there was more Japanese than Brazilians. So it's real interesting that, you know, um, the first time I became aware of that was when I met the Yamazakis that have a school in uh, Maryland. And uh, yeah, it, it just sounded so funny to see uh, a, an Asian speaking Portuguese. Just, <laughs> right. You know, it was okay. But they were, you know, there was Brazilians anyone, you know, just like in the U.S., we have every kind of nationality and culture and so forth. So Brazil did too. But uh, yeah, Elio opened up a, a school in Rio de Janeiro and uh, he had Japanese employees, you know, like really good judo men teaching. And there wasn't a lot of difference. In fact, I talked a lot with Elio. I stayed with him for almost a month and a half on his farm. And uh, I was able to talk to him through an interpreter. Actually, it was Pedro Valenci that was down there. And I was staying down there with Hiron, Hiron Gracie. They would translate for me Elio's stories. But Elio claimed he didn't invent anything. He said, everything was already in jujitsu. You know, we used to wonder if he wasn't the guy that invented the triangle. No, triangle, Sankako Jime has always been there for hundreds, thousands of years, maybe. You know, the chokes, the throws, the sweeps, you know. Of course, the Brazilians are very innovative, very clever people. They came up with a lot of really cool ideas. 
that the attitude jujitsu. But Elliot said basically all he did was take the teachings of the Japanese and form it into a curriculum and then a teaching system. He organized it. And what Elio wanted to do was make it more accessible to the average person. People that were not athletic, people that were not coordinated, you know, businessmen, housewives, uh, children. He wanted to make it so that they could learn. So he came up with a step-by-step system. And the only people teaching that system that I know of today are the Valencia brothers in North Miami Beach. Um, for sure, the uh, Henner and Hilda and Gracie at the Gracie Academy out in Torrance. Of course, you know, obviously, Horion and his brothers, Helson and Holker are still teaching the same system. But it was a teaching stop. And Steve, does, does that style with the, you know, the triangle that you had yeah. hanging you had hanging in Max exercise? Yeah. Um, is is that still consistent with their with their style? Is yeah. That, is that the brain? The yeah, like the base is, you know, condi- health and condition. You can't mm-hmm. do martial arts unless you're healthy and well conditioned. You don't have to be super strong. Many people are small and never going to be very strong. But you definitely have to have health at the bottom, which would involve, you know, being uh, muscularly fit and strong. And then the other side of the triangle would be uh, diet, very, very important. And then the other would be the technique of jujitsu, which would form the three sides of the triangle. You got to have the technique. You got to train your jujitsu. You need your specific, you know, jujitsu training. You know, you got to eat well, and then you got to be strong and fit. Yeah, at least that's the way it was presented to me. Yeah, yeah. I always, I always wondered, and I see some variations of it in, in different schools and academies now, you know, that are being marketed. Um, and and it, it, it's hard, it's hard to even imagine where the roots are, but it makes sense. I've never heard the history presented like that. Boy, you've really got your, your hands around the historical aspects of it. Uh, so yeah. I mean, appreciate some of the details, I might be off a little bit. I'm sure there'll yeah. be people that might want to argue with me, but I mean, that's the basic story. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I've heard many different opinions, uh, people, you know, debating this, that, and the other thing. But that, that's the basic story and how it got started. There's no doubt that jujitsu, I don't care how you spell it, is Japanese. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the Gracies never said they invented it. Yeah. They only polished it up. Ironically, one of the hottest things in Japan for many, many years, still may be, is Brazilian jujitsu. One of the things that the Brazilians became really adept at was fighting officer back. Yeah. Maeda had a big part in that. What Maeda found when he came to America was Americans are huge and he was very small. I think he weighed about 150 pounds. And uh, he was finding that the big American football players and big American wrestlers were putting him on his back and holding him down. So he became very adept at using strategies of fighting off his back. And a lot of the ideas for the modern day guard came from that experience <laughs> of well, being pinned and held down by bigger, stronger guys. Yeah, And uh, that's one thing that Elio more or less specialized in 
because he was small also, 148 pounds. And he wasn't particularly strong, but he became incredibly adept out of defending himself off his back. And that's one of the, you know, that, that's, that's one of the uh, aspects of jujitsu that uh, seems to, you know, even be more prevalent to this day. People, well, it was, it was I, the thing that, that it, you know, for me, when I, when I saw it, it was the missing link, right? If you, yeah. if you, had, a, if you had a grappling back, background, if you had the stand-up defensive skills, striking skills, but even with a grappling background, you know, out of, out of wrestling, when, when you were on your back, it, it, it was over. You, you're, the only objective was to get back to your belly and get back, back up again, get off your back. Yes. So the concept I, I, of being I, able to, I, right? Yeah, I suffered a lot of jokes, you know. <laughs> Just I bet you did, yeah. yeah Trying to roll over and get out of there, right? Real, real panic for me, you know. So like, <laughs> oh, whoa, what's going on here? i got to get off my back. Right. It took, it took a year of getting, getting choked out to stop that. <laughs> I learned. I I, I'm, a, I'm a slow learner, but I did learn. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you weren't alone in that aspect. I've seen a lot of grapplers go through it, as we did in that first UFC fight. Remember, was it Dan Severson? Uh, you know, really oh, that was the second, guy. second one. Second one, yeah. Just amazing how uh, you know how I was how terrified. I was I was terrified when I saw. I don't know whether you saw the first couple of fights. You know, in those days it was a tournament. Boys would fight three in one tournament. I think it was in South Carolina. He fought four times in one night. Oh, brutal. Oh, I, I know. I remember from a, you know, there are times that I look empathetically and think, oh, man, just stop. <laughs> you know, just, and there was no stop. time limit. No <laughs> gloves. You could punch You could punch in the testicles. Yeah. You could punch a guy right in the penis. Which is, I mean, which is why I think it, it was only, they were only able to hold it here in Denver. Um, yes. Right. You could punch in the throat. You could kick to the knee. <laughs> um, in those days, you could still rapid punch. You could elbow with the point of your elbow. Uh, in that first one, you could headbutt. Headbutts yeah. were all part of the game. You know, it was crazy. It was, you know, from um, if we go back and we, we think about martial arts, at least from my experience back at that time period, you know, there were different genres and different styles that had a lot of tradition tied to them, right? The Shotokan yeah. styles and, and, um, and, and it, whether it was Kung Fu or whatever it was. So to, to see that all come together in, in, a, in a tournament setting and to see masters of each style come in and test. You remember the, I think there was like a seventh or eighth Dan Shotokan guy that came in from Japan and competed. Yeah. And, and, and it was, I mean, he was, he was very humbled, uh, frustrated, but humbled by, you know, by what had, you know, taken place in that, you know, in that fight for yeah, him. Yeah, she hoisted a really nice little choke out. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting because I was there for every one of those UFCs. I was an investor. I put my money. No way. Oh, yeah. I put my money into the UFC. Wow. And not a lot of money. I wasn't rich, but yeah. I did have some money. So my, my uh, ex-wife and I, Took what money we had, I believe around ten grand, I guess, which was to us a lot of money. Yeah, right, right, you know, right, you know right. I, I was just a fledgling gym owner, just opened up. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I believed in Horia and the idea, and I believed in Hoist, but I was still terrified for him. 
man, when I saw that Frank, uh, Frank uh, uh, Ken Shamrock and yeah. his speedo with that yeah. six pack and his bulging yeah. muscles, yeah. and I saw Hoist in that baggy G, I thought, yeah. oh my God, how's he, yeah. what's he going to do? Well, Kenny and Shamrock I, had a, you know, I think fared better than most with a little bit of a shoot fighting background, right? Yes. At well, that time. first one, not so much. He got choked out like yeah. anyone else. <laughs> but the second one, uh, he just kind of played a peekaboo, you know, just not doing anything kind of style, which was yeah. smart. You know. Did he go on later to train with Royce? No. Or, or with the Gracies? No. No, no. He should have, yeah. though. You know, yeah. I would have. You know, if I if I lost to someone like that, well, I did. Yeah. You know, I went to that seminar thinking my wrestling was going to carry the day, got my butt kicked, and I I went to horror. I said, "How can I learn this, man?" <laughs> I mean, I never understood guys that would go and get their butt kicked by a jujitsu man, and then not learn it. Right. Yeah? right. Thinking, oh, if I just go back and train my punch a little bit faster, or you know, my kick a little bit harder. You know, I'll come back and, and no, man, just learn the damn jujitsu and add it into your striking. You know, well, There's I no think you know, the, why yeah, you the, can't do both, man. Well, the current world of MMA, I think, was was probably promulgated by that, right? That was yes, that, that was yes. the reaction to, you know, to to that uh, revelation, right? Well, in the early days, it was really about which style works the best, and the Horian's idea was to pit all of these different styles together in a, in a, he didn't want to go to a ring with ropes too easy to hide. He wanted to build, he was the inventor of the octagon. Hmm. He, he wanted a place where you couldn't hide. You know, you couldn't crawl through the ropes. Hmm. You couldn't hold on to the ropes, hmm. nothing to hold on to. So uh, he wanted to see, you know, put them all together, karate and, you know, Tang Sudo and Taekwondo and, shoot fighting and you know everything you can think of muay thai you know a lot there was some indonesian martial arts everything was represented at one point american wrestling you know and uh hoist prevailed but as it went on and you got towards the fourth ufc people started catching on and they started training jujitsu and by the time you know hoarding sold the business Everybody knew jujitsu, and that's what he did, and that was his intention. He wanted to spread the word of jujitsu, and you got to know jujitsu to be a good MMA fighter. It'd be very hard to, you know, compete in yeah. modern MMA without knowing jujitsu. So that was all due to Horian Gracie and, of course, Hoist. They were the ones that woke everyone up. Like, hey, if you don't know what to do, when one of these guys grabs a hold of you. You could be in real trouble on the ground. But, you know, nowadays, you know, uh, there's rules, there's gloves, no rabbit punch, no elbows, no headbutts, no groin strikes. Uh, you know, Hoyce beat Chimo grabbing his hair. That was fair game, man. Yeah. He held on to that ponytail. You know, uh, he used to be able to upkick from the guard. You can't upkick. I remember. I remember that, yeah. Uh, that's it, a devastating you know, it, technique. And then they they put those big gloves on the guys to even the playing field. Because the first UFC, there was three broken hands in that tournament. Uh, If I I remember correctly. Maybe it's two. But there there was guys that busted their hand. 
A lot of guys yeah. are afraid of breaking their hand. The gloves are designed not to protect the guy getting hit, protect the hand. You could basically punch through a wall with those damn gloves. So yeah. the gloves really limited the grappler because, let's face it, the crowds were not very educated. They hated it when it went to the ground. They'd boo, they'd fuss, they'd be upset. You know, they wanted to see just blood and fist flying and people getting knocked yeah. out. And as a spectator sport, it was very boring, except for the judicial purists. We were on the edge of our seat. We understood what was going on. But the American audiences, they had no clue. They, you know, it was like, what the hell? How comes that guy tapped out? They couldn't even figure out, like, right. what was it that happened? Yeah. They thought the guy, yeah. they thought the fights, they literally thought that some of the fights were fixed. They didn't get it. Yeah. But once they got the rules, by the way, I bailed out with William. Uh, Senator John McCain was really anti these type of cage fights. And uh, he was uh, passing legislation to have them banned in the U.S. I think I remember that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but see, it was a little dirty. He was in the pocket of the boxing commission. <laughs> And they were they were competing. They were very yeah. concerned that yeah. they were going to lose revenue yeah. to this newfangled sport. And they did. I mean, oh yes, they, look, they yeah. did. They really went down. So they wanted it banned. So I sold my interest, got my money back. Horian sold it to the Zufa brothers, and then the rest is history. It just kept. It, the, it took a year or so to reorganize, and they came back. And then they started put. They had to implant all these rules, or it wasn't going to fly. There's no yeah. way the old style of no gloves and just pretty much anything goes yeah. was going to fly. Yeah. No way. So they. Uh, oh, by the way, you could stomp a guy in the ground. You could stomp on his head, man. That was fair game. It was crazy. It was really like as close to a real fight as you're ever going to get. It was. It was. It was. It was brutal uh, and, and shocking to watch. And even if you go shocking. back now and you look at it, and and you, know, you can find them, I think, on YouTube and stuff. Just amazing. So where did where did you? Uh, what was the evolution of of your jujitsu training then? Well, where did you where I, did you continue? I started at the Gracie Academy. Mm -hmm. uh, I had the luxury of owning my own gym, so I set up a small space invited some of my ex-wrestler friends, some local judo guys, some local Aikido guys. And we would just meet and train very, you know, not organized. I mean, I, mean, I had been a former wrestling coach and physical education teacher, so I knew how to organize or practice. But, you know, it wasn't anything official. But then we started getting really big. And I got so many guys, I didn't have enough room. So I opened up the second floor of... 707 Chestnut Street, and it was a pretty rough warehouse space. And I just bought used wrestling mats and matted the whole area. I had, I think I had like 2,100 square feet of mat in the front. And then I had a back room with about 500 square feet. I had a lot of mat space. And uh, I started getting a lot of people coming in. And of course, I started going up the bout ranks. I got my blue bout in six months, my purple bout. Uh, I got my purple bout in about a year and a half, pretty quick. 
But once again, the wrestling carried the day. I had really good mat sense. And uh, yeah, I just had so many students <laughs> and just kept, you know, kept, kept, kept at it. Go out to California. I started going to Hawaii to train with Helson. And then I started bringing the guys to me. Hoist actually lived with me for <laughs> almost a month. And uh, actually, uh, he saw his first snowstorm in Philadelphia with me. He never oh, saw snow. You ever take him for a cheesesteak? Sure. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And he, uh, he drove my car in the snow. He always wanted to drive in the snow. I was pretty scared, but you know, he's a good driver. Oh, that's he, wild. He, he picked up how to turn into skin, you know, I wanted to feel it. <laughs> but that was kind of frightening. I introduced uh, Hoist to his ex, uh, well, now his ex-wife, but his wife at the time. No the mother kidding. of his, uh, I guess he's had four kids with her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, were, we were pretty close. When Helson was coming in, I, I there was one of the, one of the days of there, there was a young boy climbing around the gym. I have a picture somewhere of him on a rope. You had a rope hanging in the gym and, and, and the kid was climbing up the rope. I don't know whose son or, or boy that might've been. Was uh, he blonde? Kind of blonde? No, he's dark complected. Dark complected. I don't know who that would have been. Yeah. Maybe six or eight at the time. Yeah. I mean, I had my son, Zach, who was blonde, uh, light colored eye. Yeah. I'll have, to send you, I'll have to send you a picture. Yeah. Zach started training from the time he was a fetus, basically. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, yeah, he oh, won world. He won world. Your son Zach won. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. At the brown belt level, he won world. Wow. Did he yep. stay? In, did he stay in the sport as well? In, in, well, he, he did a couple of years after, but then he just started seeing the darker side of jujitsu. Uh, I don't know whether you realize it, but it's one of the most steroid abused sports there is. I have not seen the that. steroid mm. abuse is tremendous. <laughs> And they supposedly enacted uh, testing, but it's pretty sketchy, pretty sketchy. Mm -hmm. they, only, they only test the guys, I think, that uh, place now, but sketchy. Mm -hmm. And he felt that in order to compete, he would have to take steroids, and he didn't want to. And, and you see that in a lot of professional outlets. And outlets. he said, you know, any sport where you have to take performance-enhancing drugs in order to compete at the top level, Forget that. I don't want it. It's just yeah. not worth it to my me and my health. And uh, also, he didn't like teaching, and he didn't like teaching children. And that's two things you got to do to make a living doing jujitsu. Yeah. If if you don't like teaching kids, you're really handicapping yourself as far as financials. And if you don't like teaching at all, you're never going to make any money doing jujitsu. You have to go to MMA. But he didn't want to do that either. And he had a lot of talent and skills as an artist. So he's doing artwork full time. Doesn't really Very train nice. jujitsu anymore. Yeah. He, just, he just lost all interest. Well, you've made, you made an entire career out of jujitsu and fitness. And um, I wanted to well, talk more, more fitness. I'm more of a fitness man. I, and I, I, I know that and I see that. And I, I wore two really, hats. Yeah, I've, I've been really impressed. I've been following you for years. It's taken a while to reconnect. Um, but but I'd like you to kind of tell me and, and the listeners a little bit about your experiences over the years, because you spent a number of years traveling uh, around the world. 15 years. 15 years. Man, dude. So tell, tell me about those country. adventures. Well, of course, 
you know, I started with the fitness career as a physical education teacher and then part-time working at various gyms. And then I went full-time in the fitness business and I ran a club called the Society, at the Society Hill Club for almost 10 years. Then I opened up my own place and I ran Maxercise as a one-on-one personal training facility uh, right almost 16 years, 17 years. That's when I started my nomadism. Got divorced, sold the gym, gave the jiu-jitsu program to Hages Lebre at Sully Bero's first black belt. Hages is now running Hoyler Gracie School in San Diego, Gracie San Diego. But yeah, uh, I went through a lot of iterations in my own personal training. Started out with barbells, dumbbells, like most kids in the 60s, the old York uh, courses. Uh, later on, experimented with a, d- a lot of different bodybuilding, powerlifting, Olympic lifting type things. And then when in college, about 72, I discovered Nautilus through the writings of Arthur Jones in Iron Man magazine. And I went and I, was, I became a true believer immediately. Once I went through those machines, I was like, holy, this is what I've been looking for. And then uh, I started working at the Nautilus gym. And then even after graduation, even when I was teaching school, I worked part-time like in weekends or sometimes evenings at the Nautilus training center. And then I went through this kind of weird period of travel and a little bit of nomadism. You know, I just found myself living in different parts of the, the country. Well, it was, and, it, was, uh, it was cool to, you know, I was trying to keep up with you as you were navigating the globe. Uh, you spent some time over in the Eastern Bloc in Russia. Yep. Um, eight times, eight trips. Wow. That I became kind of enamored with Sistema. I saw an exhibition by Vladimir Vasiliev, who runs a school in Toronto. Guy's very good. And I wanted to see some more of some of the things he was doing because I thought a lot of the ideas could be easily incorporated into jiu-jitsu self-defense. And it's interesting because Jiu-jitsu is basically a technique-based martial art. If I do this, you do that. The problem with technique is you don't always do this exactly the way you train it in class. You know? Mm-hmm. What if he does it a little bit different, different angle, whatever? Right. Right. You need to adapt. So in Sistema, it's a principle-based martial art. Based on principles, you apply the principles to the situation, not necessarily a technique. Now, if you take principle-based with technique-based, I think you have the most perfect martial art, <laughs> which is really interesting because Master Hickson no longer teaches techniques. He is now teaching principles of jiu-jitsu. And he, oh. he, of all the brothers, he was more principle-based than the others. So I know because, Let's do face it. it, everybody in your class is a different body. Old guys, young guys, tight yeah. guys, fight with guys. Strong guys, not strong guys, heavy guys, fat guys, skinny guys. You need to adapt the move to yourself. So if you're going with hardcore technique, you must do it like this. Yeah. A lot yeah. of guys can't adapt. Yeah, may not you apply. Need, if you don't have, right. I could just to, think, you know, if you, if you were to look at the, you know, traditional, let's say, Shotokan uh, style of karate and, and a front snap kick, if somebody's not physically suited, to have that 
perfect technique. You could bang your head against the wall day long trying to, to get them to have the perfect technique, but anatomically they may never, right? That's so, correct. So, so tell me, to, but, I know you're still once doing- Once again, the hole in Sistema was a little technique can also go a long way, you know, just understanding a couple basic techniques, you can apply the principle. So I think it's really important that you have both technique and principles and not just be principle-based. I know you're but doing I did, I did. I did like the Sistema. I thought it was the real deal. I, I, I took many seminars in Russia. I trained in Krasnodar with uh, Alexei Alexevich Kadashnikov. He was the father of modern Russian military martial arts. A lot of weapons were uh, incorporated using the rifle, the bayonet, various knives, a lot of open, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat as well. Yeah. Pretty brutal, very effective, very effective. A lot of breathing, a lot of relaxation, a lot of very interesting, very interesting biomechanical mobility drills, ways of getting up and down off the floor, not just standing up in base, but many different ways of getting up, getting down, uh, taking falls. You know, falling is really important. And they didn't believe in falling on mats. They say, nope, you've developed bad habits. You need to fall on really hard surface. So they start you out in a hardwood floor or concrete from day one. But, you know, they're smart. You just fall from a sitting position. Well, first you start by lying on the, on the concrete, just getting used to it, learning to keep the bones. You don't want the bones to touch the concrete, only the soft flesh. You get really comfortable rolling and laying on the concrete. Then from a sitting position, you fall side, side, back, from your knees to the front. And you, know, you just gradually build up from kneeling to squatting to crouching to full falls to being thrown. So this step is step process. This is Sistema? Yes, Sistema. And it just basically means the system. Yeah. The system. And you, yeah. have different, you have different systems. I trained under Kadashnikov, Kadashnikov system. And I later got certified through a uh, former uh, special ops colonel, Colonel Alexander Maximsov. He was a Ukrainian in the, the old Russian military. And then later he became a special police in the Ukraine. And uh, he was a pretty formidable guy. Hey, Stu, how, how, did you, how did you find these guys? How did you just walk into Russia and find them? You know, <laughs> just searching, looking, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I believe very much in mental science, you know, your belief systems attract your life situations, Yeah. you know, and uh, I used to make this affirmation, those that need me most, and those that I need most are inexplicably drawn together. And sure enough, it. people that needed me for what I know, they would find me and guys that I needed, I would just find them. It was like a mental Science. Wow. Yeah, they call it mental yeah. science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The law, that, the universal law of attraction. Sure, the law of attraction. But familiar with it, yeah, indisputable. I know they don't. You know, they they argue that quantum physics isn't a science, but I don't know whose definition that is. You know. Uh, All I know uh, is has been working for me for many years. For I, I wealth, for love, for you know. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I've had my downfalls, and I've had ups and downs, but, you know, that's all due to my own mentality. 
you know, when you really get right down to it, uh, you really are what you, I mean, you really attract what you are. Yeah, I, I believe it. it I, I know you, you know, away from the martial arts, but you've, you've, you've immersed yourself in a number of different modalities and uh, not, not to, uh, not to play on that, on that word immersed too much, but I know that you also got into cold water uh, therapy. That was treatment. all part of the Russian uh, system. They have the four pillars of Russian uh, Is that right? systema. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're very, very religious. Uh, it's a uh, Orthodox Christian martial art that was created by the monks in ancient Russia to combat the Mongols. Now tell That's, me, what, what is this referred to as? Systema that, got that, its origin systemic, from the four, Orthodox four Christian monks. Wow. And they had wow. they had four four principles. Wow. It was breath, breathing, because breathing is so important. Like Master Hickson teaches two hours of breathing now in a lot of his seminars. Mm -hmm. And breath, prayer, faith, push-ups, cold water. <laughs> And the push-ups are uh, <laughs> a symbol for just, you know, work, you know, for training, work, training, bodily, yeah. Tra yeah. Yeah. So you got no. breath, prayer, push-ups, cold water. Oh, dude. The cold water is a health practice. Yeah. It's called dowsing. And yeah. every day before 11 o'clock, I slowly pour a bucket of water over my body. And every night before 11. Oh, and twice it, a day. Yeah, twice a day. It builds yeah. tremendous immunity, yeah. strength, vitality, vital yeah. force. But you got to know how to do it. You can hurt yourself just going out and just start tossing water over yourself. You got to be very careful. You got to build into it. You got to yeah. know how to do it. There's a real technique to it. You just don't well, go out I, in the middle, middle of winter and start. Yeah, I, uh, you can cause more harm than good. I'm determined, I, to, uh, I'm determined to improve on it. I, I did an event uh, last year uh, up above 10,000 feet. I, I did a uh, solo Ironman distance triathlon, which incorporated a 2.4-mile swim in a, in a very cold body of water that ended up putting me in a hypothermia. But, uh, no, and, you know, just, well, I had a wetsuit on, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't hold much body fat. And I don't have that. I, and I know you can you can build that acclimation and become more acclimated, but I, I, I don't. So I've got a, I've got a cold water tub sitting in the backyard. Um, good for you. I, yeah. And I've been, can be really good. Well, I've been working on, you know, just 10 minute uh, intervals working on the breathing, but I saw you do something that I've started incorporating when I get out of the water, which I thought made a lot of sense uh, on, on how you dry and exfoliate uh, afterwards as well. Uh, talk about that part of the practice yeah i mean uh, i i do breathing preparation before i douse with the bucket the mm -hmm. whole idea is to uh to create that diving reflex where you kind of involuntarily hold the breath which stimulates the vagus nerve and according to the russians you actually get like a little flash fever you know your inner core temperature will jump which burns up any bacteria or viruses and so yeah. forth because fever is your na body's natural right. uh barrier to those yeah. things you know suppressing fever has never made much sense to me of course if you go too high right, right. but you know you want to 
a low grade right. fever is good. Your body's right. burning up all that crap in there. Yeah. So after, you know, doing breath preparation and slowly pouring the water, you just stand there and you just breathe and you just let the sensation of warmth and heat. And then you take a coarse towel, okay. like a really rough towel, like a towel that hasn't been dried in the dryer, mm-hmm. but taken out. So it's like sandpaper. Yeah. And you just exfoliate your skin. You know, your skin's your biggest organ. Yeah. And uh, as an organ of elimination and also protective layer. So, you know, you want to keep your skin in good shape. And brushing and, and rubbing the skin is extremely good for it. And I'll just rub from head to toe, you know. There's like a, a way you can kind of do it like shining shoes, you know. You yeah. rub your top yeah. down. Yeah. A little bit more breath work. Standing barefoot on the ground, you know, grounding. Yeah. Getting the... the electromagnetic field of the earth yeah. flowing upward through the body, kind of like a recharging a battery. Yeah. 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 I do I, a lot of uh, Qigong, you know, tapping and, you know, rubbing and, you know, all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a whole ritual. I, I was taught by uh, uh, a Chinese mentor on Qigong. So the, uh, I've started one my using... many One of my many trips. I've been I'm sure. China. China, Taiwan, <laughs> twice. Was was Japan incorporated into any of this? Yeah, those? yeah, I, Japan. Yep, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I went way up in the mountains to this little town that hasn't changed from before World War II. No stoplights, hmm. nothing, and they had these natural volcanic waters that flowed into the hotel, and you would be sleeping uh. on a futon on tatami, with the little sliding doors, just like out of a samurai movie. And each room had its own little <laughs> private tub where this natural volcanic water was piped in. Wow, it was really nice. Pretty oh, hot. Man. Oh, man. And then you had a cold shower you could take. Incredible. And then there was all these trails through the mountains. Yeah, yeah. Were you, were, you, uh, were you training there as well? Did somebody lead you through those rituals? No. Uh, I, uh, someone at the hotel told me mm-hmm. a little bit about it. Yeah. But in China, I actually had my friend Stanley Tam, who was the first BJJ black belt in China, who owned uh, a, he owned yeah. a, I, he owned a bunch of schools in Shanghai. He was a, a Qigong master before he got into jujitsu. He yeah. taught me a lot of health practices. Uh, they call it Taoist yoga, or qi, Qigong, but Taoist mm-hmm. yoga. A lot of energetic practices. Basically rubbing, tapping, breathing, you know, all sorts of really cool stuff. I incorporated. And then with the Sistema, they have what they call the Russian Slavic Health System, which is a whole series of biomechanical uh, mobility drills, their own way of moving. And these are all systems that I study. Very interesting. One of the downsides, uh, you know, there, there was a time I got away from the high-intensity training model and started playing around with the Indian clubs, the club bells. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, kettlebells. Uh, mm-hmm. I see that as a mistake. I think those modalities are, are not very sustainable. Anytime you're swinging and throwing weights around with momentum, it's very hard in the joints over time. Now, when you're young, you don't notice it. It's like smoking cigarettes. You can smoke for several decades and not feel it. You know, you don't feel any deleterious effect until you are diagnosed with cancer or emphysema. Well, it's kind of like that with these weights where you're explosively lifting. 
Same thing for Olympic barbells and all that, you know, doing Olympic lifts. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying that it's not the best way to train for life, for longevity. It's not even the best way to train for jujitsu. Yeah. Well, I hear what you're saying. I think what's so interesting in talking to you and listening to your experience and something that's, you know, obviously very evident is that you've, you've lived and pursued a passion of, of fitness and health your, your entire life. I mean, it's just been, it's been something you've continued to build on and learn. And I, I've watched you go through those different experiences, but how, how awesome is, is that to be able to sample and, and implement those different practices, pull something from that, you know, put it in the library of, of knowledge and foundation that you have physically uh, and, you know, be able to evaluate the results. There are a lot of people who've, who are stuck in, you know, one modality and pick up a habit. Uh, I, I see it a lot with runners. I see it a lot with cyclists. And there's, there's a limit to what your body's going to be able to handle in a repetitive format like that. And eventually that repetition, that, that endured amount of stress is, is going to, you know, present itself somewhere in, in some type of an imbalance. Uh, and so it's, I think it's really healthy to have these other outlets and these other experiences pick up these other modalities. And you, you've made a life out of it. Made a life out of it. Well, it's one thing to do mobility and things. There's, there's not any harm to the joints. But when you're using explosive weight training or body weight calisthenics, once again, for the readers that are going to get all get their back up you know, and get all upset, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not. Explosive training works. Olympic lifting works. Kettlebells work. Club bells work. But they don't work any better than slow training with complete control. It does not work any better. Believe me, I've tried it all. And I've put hundreds of young men through workouts. I'm just saying that, you know, usually when it usually takes you to about 50 years old to start to realize this. A lot of the young bucks out there, they're having good success with their box jumps and CrossFit and all that, you know, heavy ropes and battling ropes and all this nonsense. But there's a much better way to do it. See, everyone's looking at, at strength, endurance, hypertrophy. Everyone's forgetting about safety, sustainability. Everyone forgets that part. And almost every workout that many of these young guys go through in the gym are creating subacute injuries. Not an acute injury, mm -hmm. just like little insults to the joints in the body. So by the time they do reach their 50s, they're crippled up with a lot of osteoarthritis that could have been avoided if they would have trained in a safer manner. That's all I'm saying. And the isometrics that, I, that I'm into now and the slow, high-tension training work way better over time over time for, from a safety point of view. You might not get bigger or more muscular, but you're not going to create these subacute injuries and all these little insults to the body. That's my point. Well, let me and, ask you, you about, know, you know, on, on that point, um, and, I, and I think, you know, uh, it may be harder to, to sell those concepts to, to younger folks. Well, young guys <laughs> don't want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, but the reality but is you can get today, away with anything when you're 
If, if you look at the impact of COVID, unfortunately, on so many Americans in particular, uh, <clears throat> instead of, you know, using that time as an opportunity to, you know, transform yourself into a, into a healthy, some people have, a lot of people have, I, you know, you see evidence of that, but statistically, it, what I'm, what I'm reading is that people have gone the other way. They've gained weight, they've, they've lost health and fitness being locked down. And, and so uh, what you're talking about speaks to, I think, the, an opportunity for a lot of those people to regain or reintroduce themselves into, into fitness or a healthier lifestyle. Well, you know, I started traveling about 2005 and I kind of uh, referred to myself as a digital nomad because I started doing online training mm -hmm. and I have clients all over the world. Just today, for example, I worked with a guy in uh, Indiana. I worked with a woman in Portugal. And uh, tomorrow I have a guy from the UK, you know, uh, I have people all over the world that I work with, people in France, Australia, you know. Well, you and, led me into that. I was going to ask, but, you know, what, what are you doing today? I know you're, you're also still teaching uh, jiu-jitsu seminars, right? Yeah, I did one in Savannah this weekend. I, I Gracie Jiu-Jitsu South Defense at uh, Serge uh, BJJ in Savannah, Georgia. Real nice guy, Michael Sergey. Uh, good, good strength coach on his own right. Has a really nice little school. Uh, a lot of those guys, even the black belt, didn't have a clue about the uh, stand-up self-defense. Yeah. 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 Well, there's, they, there's, knew, there's a... they only knew the sport point style system. So it was a little bit of an eye-opener. But I tried to show them how they could use the skills that they've already attained in a more defensive manner, in a, like a more realistic kind of encounter. That was my main point. I like know? it. I like it. Well, there's a message to all the BJJ gyms that are out there that uh, are, are looking to expand their offerings to their clients. Hit Steve Maxwell up. Uh, ask ask if he can be a guest at at your at your dojo or studio, and and bring what is an an, an immense amount of experience uh, to the table. Where where do folks find you today, Steve? Where's the best place? I'm following you on Instagram, and I think everybody should should do the same thing. Uh, what's yeah, what's the, on Instagram? Uh, the, the, the website is stevemaxwellsc.com. I'll put that in show notes. And, and I think on Instagram, uh, uh, you know what? I don't, my girlfriend handles all my social I media. I got it. It's uh, Steve Maxwell SC. Okay, good. Yeah. Steve Maxwell I also, SC. I, have a, I do have a Facebook page. I have two. One's kind of a private thing I just like to fool around yep. with, you know, but, it, you know, but then I have a professional Facebook page where people can follow me. I make announcements. I, and I'm always putting up, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So yeah, they can follow me on Steve Maxwell SC on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I don't know. My girlfriend's always taking photos, videos, you know, I don't know. I'll, uh... and I, I have a lot of videotapes, instructionals and so forth that people want to learn this system. You know, I'm going to be 70 years old next year. I can't uh, believe dude. it. Oh, yeah. I well, am a year younger than Horion and a year <laughs> older than Helsin. And I I feel like a kid, Sam. I can't believe seven decades have just flew by, man. Yeah. This Actually, December 3rd, I'll be 69. But then next year, 
I'll be starting my seventh decade, uh, December 3rd. I'll yeah. be the start of my seventh decade. Uh, I can't believe it. It just seems like time just poof. So for all your listeners, live your life. Enjoy. And uh, one other thing I wanted to point out, you know, the COVID thing really kicked everyone's butt pretty good, you know, with all the clothes down, the gyms closing down. Uh, I, during my digital nomad days, I would live in a different country, different city, every two weeks, different place, different place, just on this continuous circuit. Man, you ought to see the airline miles I've gathered. I mean, I could pretty much fly first class for the next 10 years with no extra money required just for points. Have you journaled? Have you journaled this or kept? kept oh, yeah, we keep strict. Man, we, those points are like money, dude. We no, I mean, your, I mean your travels. Do you have, do you have photos you know, or journals? I, couldn't, I just live day by day in yeah. the present. I didn't worry about what happened yesterday. And I do look forward to the future, but I don't dwell on it. I just try to be in the here and now. Yeah. But yeah, all those travels, I became very independent from gyms and fitness equipment. Mm-hmm. I got to the point where I could just go to any hotel room and give myself an unbelievable workout, even pull-ups, just grabbing the top of the door, putting two wash rags, sliding up and down the door or holding at the top isometrically, you know? Oh, dude, um, I, to- I totally can relate. I've got... I've got artifacts in my yard that I've pulled out of the woods that, you know, there that you I've been go. carrying around. Yeah. You know, you know yeah, I, do, you I do. You don't yeah. need a fancy gym, fancy equipment. I mean, I, that's the whole no zero days thing. It's like every day gives you the opportunity to get out and do something, some amount of time to focus on your fit. I don't care if you're sitting at your desk, you know, if you're in a hotel room, you can make time to do something to, to, to add a contribution I, to that. Yeah. I never missed a workout. And yeah. I never let weather be a barrier. Yeah. And I never even let illness be a barrier, unless I was really sick. Thank God yeah. I haven't been sick for many, many years. Yeah. I did get the COVID just recently. Yeah. Uh, I felt pretty shitty there for a few days, but, you know, it passed. I'm fine. Now I got yeah. natural immunity. Right, right. You know, natural yeah. immunity. Yeah. So well, I, I think... Th- Natural got to be better than any shot. Oh man, you, you know we don't want to get in an argument. I'm with no, you. No, we that, don't want to get in that yeah. argument. I don't want to become it, Aaron Rodgers. Just, I <laughs> but I think the greater or, message, or Joe, or Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, we really went after him. But the uh, you know the real the real message there is that you know you're making contributions when when you are making contributions to your lifestyle or to your fitness. On a, on a regular basis, it becomes a lifestyle. It does. And it just life. becomes part of who you are. And I, I you know, couldn't no sooner be sedentary. I mean, it would be impossible. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you're the same way. Yeah. It, it I just, am. Not, I, you know, I just would find myself getting up and doing stuff, you know? It'd yeah. be impossible to hold me back. No, I, it doesn't. It doesn't take work anymore. I mean, I can step into it. Not every day is epic. Not every day is monumental in, in, in the workout or the effort. But every day there's some emphasis. And I, you know, it, for me, it's like drinking water. And, you know, guys like us, I mean, even if we got locked down in a hotel room somewhere, I would still figure out all sorts of ways to work out. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, I was just looking at your Instagram page and there's something like, 
4,300 posts. So, uh, if, no, really? <laughs> yeah, people, I have over 27,000 followers. If people want to know what Steve's been up to, follow him on Instagram. To it, really? I mean, uh, well, there's, I just, there's great content there, dude. Just like the, you know, the exfoliating thing in the bucket, uh, you know, have it that you shared with the, with the cold water. I picked that up from your Instagram page. Uh, lots of great, really, really interesting content. So I encourage people to go out there and look at it. You can also find Thank Steve at, at Steve Max, it's uh, Maxwell uh, SC, uh, www.maxwellsc.com. Uh, and uh, we're also, we've also learned on Facebook, uh, Steve Maxwell, man, it's been really great catching up. I want to, yeah, I want to thank you again. Man. Wow. Dude, long time. We need to, we need to bring you to Denver. I'll find it. I'll find a gym out here. Let's, uh, yeah, uh, let's go. Let's man. do something here. I want to visit Denver. I'd love it. Steve Maxwell. Okay. Thanks for your time, brother. Hey, Sam. Great talking to you. You I'll, as well. I'll talk to you again.